You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up today, our very own Mr. Hockey, Jim Lang, with a preview of the 2019-2020 Toronto Maple Leafs. Also on the show, are you ready to take the Let's Cook Challenge? Afwaba with the details. But we begin with the annual fundraiser for breast cancer. Joining us in the 105.9 studios today, Julia Supa from the CIBC Run for the Cure and Daniela and Sarah, who will be sharing her own experiences and story of hope with us. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having having us. us. Julia, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about the CIBC Run for the Cure. Thank you. Uh, the Canadian Cancer Society CIBC Run for the Cure takes place on Sunday, October 6th, 2019. It's the largest national charitable funder of breast cancer research in Canada. It takes place in 57 communities across Canada, and we're thrilled to have a location right here in Vaughan at North Maple Regional Park on Keel Street. There's also another location in York Region at Richmond Green, and that is the Richmond Hill Markham location. And how many people do you expect to be out next Sunday? So the Vaughn location is a brand new location for us this year. We're looking at about twelve to 1,500 participants and volunteers combined, and about the same or a little bit larger for the Richmond Hill site. Tell us why you decided to get involved. I've been a volunteer with the uh, Canadian Cancer Society, formerly formerly Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation, for 10 years. Um, I was a run director for eight of those 10 years. My mother-in-law is a breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed 10 years ago. And I was looking for an outlet in our community to give back and something where I could share my talents for organizing events and participating in events and something that we could make a difference. One in eight women is diagnosed, Canadian women is diagnosed with breast cancer. And I'm a woman, I have a sister, and I have two young daughters. So breast cancer touches everyone that we know. Someone knows someone with breast cancer or who's had breast cancer. So this was a cause uh, that was very important to me. It still is. And that's why I continue to volunteer. And how many women or how many people are diagnosed across the country every year? So every year across Canada, 26,500 men and women receive a breast cancer diagnosis. Now, Daniela, you're joining us in studio as well today, and you're here to share your story. Tell us about your diagnosis and how that happened. I was diagnosed at the age of 40, uh, turning 41 in July. So my journey all began in March of 2017, just watching a movie, you know, um, with my boyfriend sitting on the couch and he was just had his arm around me caressing my side and he felt a lump and he had stated, he was like, you know what, why don't you just go get this checked out? Cause it kind of feels weird. So I went five days later to uh, my doctor. We had an ultrasound done. And the actual key word um, in the ultrasound is the word shadowing. So that key word popped out uh, was shadowing. And they wanted me to go to um, the hospital to get further diagnosis. So I went there, did a biopsy and another ultrasound. And so that all happened in the end of March, but it was actually after Easter, 
because Easter had fallen a little bit earlier. Um, in the beginning of April, I was diagnosed. Um, so it was Easter Monday, then the Tuesday I got diagnosed with breast cancer. My knees buckled. I literally fell to the ground. Um, as cancer is not um, part of my family, not on my dad's side, nor my mom's. So I was the very first to be diagnosed. Um, my mom's, my mom was just like, we'll get through this. We'll do this together. I am my dad's rock and my family's rock. I can, um, I overcome everything. I have, I'm a powerhouse. So I never stop. I never give up. I've, I'm a single mom, raised my two kids, Christian and Lucas, which I love tremendously. And they were my fight. So, so tell us where you went from diagnosis to what were the next steps for you? Because every person's journey is very different. Yeah. So I got diagnosed. I had a uh, lobular carcinoma institute um, cancer. I hope I'm saying this right because I get memory fog sometimes. But um, I had the lobular carcinoma and it was in one spot. So it was at my 10 o'clock position on my my right breast. So I went to go see Dr. Eason, Elizabeth Eason, who's in uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, which I love her. She was um, my guardian angel. She had given me the option of doing a lumpectomy. I had stated to her that didn't want to have that. I wanted both my breasts removed. Um, it was a difficult de- decision to make. However, um, I felt confident and I decided to get them both removed. She was a little bit on the fence with it. So before my surgery, they do another ultrasound and they had noticed that my cancer had spread in my right breast in three positions, in f- six positions. Three were cancerous, three were dormant. And the likelihood of it spreading to my left was high. So she was actually very um, happy that I had made that decision. And it was the best decision that I had made. And that must take a lot of strength. It does. It does. Like, how did you get there? I mean, to decide that, you know what, my option is to have a lumpectomy, Mm -hmm. which is a major surgery in itself, and then to make that leap and say, no, I'm going to have the double mastectomy. And you sound very confident in your decision. I was very confident. I turned to Christ. I turned to God. Um, I left everything up to him, and he helped me throughout this. I prayed every single day. Um, I say the rosary still to this day, every day, because I am so grateful. He, he was my strength in all this. The power of prayer is everything. Having faith, staying positive, having the right people beside you. And the people beside you is, is the key because there's a lot of people who disappear when you're given that word. And you know who your true friends are and your family. And I learned a lot in this journey and in this process. So you had the double mastectomy and then what? So I had the double mastectomy and when you have cancer, they look for your, at your lymph nodes as well. So the day of the surgery, um, which was a six to eight hour surgery that I had, they removed my lymph nodes. The Dr. Easton had gone and said, you know what, everything went perfect. Her lymph nodes are clear. Everybody was like, 
excited, happy. And I'm like, that's awesome. So two weeks later, when I went for my checkup, my doctor was like, I have bad news. And I says, why? She says, um, when pathology di- dissected your lymph nodes, one out of the two lymph nodes was infected. So I had to go for another surgery and remove um, an additional 12 lymph nodes. So I had three lymph nodes that were infected out of the 14. So it was a, it was kind of, she was crying actually. She felt horrible. She says, I'm sorry, I have to put you through this. She goes, you've gone through enough. And, um, but at least they caught it. I'm on tamoxifen. So my doctor has stated at first for five years, but now she's reconsidering for me to be on it for the next seven to 10. And I didn't know that people could be on it for that long. Has that changed? Do you know anything about um, the the change in protocol for tamoxifen? Well, tamoxifen is what helps your estrogen. So it controls it. Um, a lot of women and those who are listening who do have breast cancer will probably agree. It really affects you. Um, your bones hurt. Memory loss. A little bit of memory loss. Weight gain. Tremendous weight gain. Um, but those are little things that I will accept. Um, but it is irritable. Like it just, my knees buckle sometimes. My joints hurt. And, but I would take that over anything. And it's, it's short term. And it's the positive mind that will get you through anything. And I'm going to stress that out as much as I can because you need it. You need a positive mindset. So here you are, two years down the road. Mm-hmm. What's your message to other people out there, maybe who are just receiving that diagnosis? Just always believe and trust. Um, have a positive attitude. I, had, um, I was working, I'm in the bridal industry, and I was working selling bridal gowns, and I decided to get into my own career, back into the wedding planning, and it's grown and I'm a hard worker. Um, I wake up every day being grateful. I look around and I say, you know what? When I walk through those hallways of Princess Margaret and I see what people go through, I'm one of the lucky ones. And I'm blessed. I am truly blessed. So that's what I say is just have a positive mindset. And why get involved with the CIBC Run for the Cure? Why get involved? Why not get involved? You know, we're women, we're all here together, men, women, children, um, our future and our children are here, and they've come a long way. And I have to say, with um, I was very, very lucky, one of the lucky ones as well. Um, they've come a long way with treatments, how to reconstruction, um, all that stuff, and honestly, donate, donate, because breast cancer is... Um, I would say probably every other woman that I hear has breast cancer. So honestly, support our women, our men, because some men do also get breast cancer as well. So, Julia, if our listeners want more information about the CIBC Run for the Cure, either to participate or to donate, how can they do that? Absolutely. They can go to www.cibcrunforthecure.com. I do want to say that you don't have to run. If you can't run, you can walk, you can jog. Yes. We have a 5K, <laughs> we have a 1K. 
Pets are welcome. Uh, strollers are welcome and wheelchairs, but no rollerblades or skateboards, please. Um, and even if you just want to come and donate or be part of the action, if you'd like to volunteer, we're still looking for volunteers. Great opportunity for high school students. Uh, and there's a variety of jobs available as well. So this is an entirely volunteer-led initiative and event. And every single dollar raised is invested into research, support, and advocacy work. Daniela will be on site as our honored hope speaker. And she will be sharing her story as well as a sea of pink. Um, there will be men and women in pink shirts there, and they reflect people who are currently going through cancer, who have received a diagnosis, or have lived through that part of that journey, right? So we are celebrating the past, the present, the future, and we're all raising funds for this amazing cause because we are promising that cancer is beatable, breast cancer is beatable. And our very own Rob on the Road is co-hosting the festivities with Julia Supa at the CIBC Run for the Cure in Vaughan next Sunday. We'll see you there. Next on the feed, Jim Lang with his take on this year's Toronto Maple Leafs and if we should already start planning that Stanley Cup parade. Well, the Maple Leafs regular season is almost upon us. Wednesday, October 2nd, the Maple Leafs hosting the Ottawa Senators in the home opener at Scotiabank Arena. What was been an active and dramatic offseason and no less dramatic training camp and preseason to get more of a detail what's coming up for this season with the Leafs and what's been happening thrilled to be joined by a veteran really dialed in Maple Leafs reporter who really knows what's going on Mike Algello. Michael how are you my friend good morning Jim I'm well um so much has happened with the, the Mitch Marner drama the contract but lately the story about Austin Matthews and now this the court proceeding uh that's going on in Scottsdale Arizona it, what, whatever happens is to be I guess, to be seen. But what kind of effect could this happen on his rumored and expected captaincy for the Leafs? I, I, I mean, obviously, it's a sort of a regrettable situation. It's, it's, it pales in comparison to something like the Antonio Brown antics. So I think it has to be put in perspective. But I think the big question is, when did the Leafs know about the situation, whether Austin told them about this during the summer or it was just dropped on them. And Bob McKenzie reported this morning that uh, they, they probably were not aware of this. So I think it, it could delay the naming of a captain until next season. I know that, you know, there are other uh, candidates like uh, uh, Morgan Riley or John Tavares, who I think would be good captains, but do the Leafs really want to go down the road of, naming them captain and then being asked, well, how does it feel to be the second choice? I mean, I think that everything pointed in the direction of Austin Matthews being named captain, and now I think that this incident probably makes that, at least right now, impossible. Now, Mitch Marner Thornhill is coming off a phenomenal season, Michael, and he he held out. He wasn't going to sign her a certain deal. He got his money. He has the contract. Uh, the deal is done. What can we expect from Marner now that he has the money, has the contract, and the peace of mind financially to build on what was a phenomenal last season? Well, it's going to be tough to top 94 points. Uh, you know, I mean, he had a phenomenal year last year, and he's going to be playing with John Tavares. He won't have Zach Hyman on his wing for at least the first month, but I think the expectation is that he continues to mature, uh, You know, plays a role in the power play, special teams, and on penalty killing as well. Uh, and five on five. I mean, I think they expect the production to go up 
it's tough to, you know, 94 points is tough to top. I think he could get to 100 points, but I think that the Leafs' expectations for him is just to maintain the level of excellence uh, that, that he is that he's shown over the first three years of his career. Now, I know that there's been some criticism of Kyle Dubas in terms of the contract, and if you compare it to what happened with Matthew Kachuk uh, this morning, uh, Braden Point yesterday, and a couple other deals out there that the, the Leafs may have overpaid, but the situation is now they have him locked up for six years, and you really don't have to worry about the, the contractual situation with him. All you have to worry about is, you know, if you're Kyle Dubas, is how to fit in the players that you need to fit in under the cap. And speaking of that, it's a, it's a new look defense. We get a full season of Jake Muzzin. Tyson Berry's in town. Jake Gardner's gone. How will that affect the makeup of the blue line and the way the Leafs play in their own end? Well, I think the top four of their blue line is significantly better than it was last year. I mean, last year you had um, Muzzin and Zaitsev in the playoffs. You had uh, Hainsey playing with Morgan Riley. Now, I think Cody Ceci, you know, in spite of the, the critics in the analytics world, I think Ceci is a good fit for Morgan Riley, and that's going to be the pairing to start the year. And now you have Muzzin with, with Tyson Berry. I think the top four is better the concern is the, the bottom pairing until Travis Dermott gets back from off-season shoulder surgery. And you look at that situation, and right now, if the season started today, it would probably be Rasmus Sandin, the 19-year-old former first-round pick, and Martin Marinson. Not exactly an ideal situation, but you know, it's only the first month, and they've played players who were borderline NHLers early in the year on defense, so it's probably going to be similar. In, in that instance. Speaking with veteran Maple Leafs reporter Michael Jello, and uh, Michael is really understanding what's going around the league and trends and analytics and everything, Michael, but I, I can't help but think that everything that Kyle Dubas and Mike Babcock has assembled for this team, it all going to rest on the shoulders of Freddie Anderson at one point, and if he can be that goalie that wins games that seems impossible when they need it. I agree, and I think the responsibility on him is going to be even heavier uh, after the Michael Neuvert release from the PTO. I think they were hoping that Neuvert could stay healthy and play more than the normal backup in Toronto would play, but he, he wasn't healthy, he wasn't available, and they, they cut bait, and now it's Michael Hutchinson. And I, I thought Michael Hutchinson in five games last year was fairly capable, and I think he could handle 25 to, say, 27 games you know, if Anderson has said at training camp, ideally he'd like to play 55 to 60 games, but Babcock always goes back to, well, I, I'm going to play him as much as I need to to get in the playoffs. But when he get in the playoffs, if you have a goaltender who plays 60 to 65 games, more times than not, they're, they're exhausted. So I think that they have to limit Anderson's starts to, say, 55 games. And if, if Hutchinson can't do that, then they're going to have to find a, a backup goaltender to be able to uh, fill that gap. Uh, Michael, you just mentioned Mike Babcock, and that's, that is a really interesting conundrum to me for Shanahan and Dubas and the Maple Leafs organization. He's the highest paid coach in the NHL, making huge money. He's got an unreal resume, both, you know, nationally and domestically and internationally, no matter what level of hockey. However, he can't get this team past the first round. What kind of pressure is he under internally in the organization they won't even speak of? to get at least to the second or third round of the playoffs this year? Well, I mean, my own personal opinion is if they lose in the first round, I think Mike Babcock will not be back next year. I don't th I think he's got the year. I, th I don't think they will, you know, if they struggle early on, I don't think he'll, his job is in jeopardy. But I do think if they have four first-round exits and you have Sheldon Keefe, who's won a Calder Cup and who's worked with Kyle Dubas for years, 
in 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 the wings that Babcock, uh, you know, it, depending on circumstance, if somebody like Tavares or Matthews gets hurt and they lose in the first round, that's obviously you know a factor. But if all, after all these changes they don't uh, advance, then I think he, he's in trouble and he'll get hired in five seconds. So it, it, I don't think it's going to be a detriment to his career. But you know they they need this team to go further. They've improved them on defense. They've, uh, you know, they've replaced Nazan Kadri with Alex Kerfoot. You've got your core locked up for years. It's, it's do or die for Mike Babcock. He's got to find a way to get this team further than they've gone. And Michael, I look at the Boston Bruins. I look at the Tampa Lightning. It's not an easy task for him at all. No. And Florida has dramatically improved this year as well with Bobrovsky. Now goaltending is not a problem. I mean, there's no guarantee that the Leafs are going to finish in the top three. I mean, it's going to take a, a bit of an adjustment with all the changes that they've made uh, early on in the season, you know, to to maintain a high level. But I think they can do it because they have a ton of talent. But Florida is better. Uh, Boston may have a Stanley Cup hangover from last year, and you know that Tampa has something to prove after losing in the first round to Columbus. So, you know, it, it's going to be a challenge to Mike Babcock. I think this is a playoff team, but he's going to have to, you know, manage the roster carefully. He's going to have to give the star players enough to ice time to keep them happy and he's going to have to get performances out of his bottom six and his bottom pairing that right now are questionable because we, it's going to sort of be hodgepodge yeah you know i mean you think about the scenario you're painting michael i can almost see early in the season until some of these key players are healthy that babcock may not have a choice but to roll off some lines and give extra minutes to matthews marner Tavares, and you know guys like that just to lean on them more. I mean, they want it. They want the more minutes, but he might have to early on until he can get players he trusts back in the lineup. Yeah, I mean, right now, your third line, I mean, they're going to have Caspi Kapanen playing on the left wing, which is out of position for him. They're going to have him playing on the second line with Tavares and Marner, which I think will be a good line. But the third line is almost completely new. It's, it's uh, probably Ilya Mikhaev, the uh, the KHL they, they signed, uh, Alex Kerfoot, who they got in the Cadre deal, and Trevor Moore. And that's a completely new third line. I think it's good, but it's going to take a little bit of adjusting, and we don't know how he's going to trust that line early on. And the fourth line right now, uh, it, two-thirds of it is Jason Spezza and Freddie Gauthier, and one of them playing out of position. I, I don't think that's an optimum situation. I think that you know, you're, you're better off having one of them playing center, and there are so many uh, prospect wingers that this team has, like Bracco or... Engvall or Mason Marchman, who I think would fit in better on the fourth line, but he, uh, Babcock seems intent on including Freddie Gauthier in their top 12. Well, we're going to find out Wednesday, October 2nd, Scotiabank Arena, the home opener against the Senators, and then the march to the playoffs begins an 82-game marathon, and we'll be looking forward to your coverage uh, throughout. Michael, a real pleasure. Thank you for doing this. I love speaking hockey with you and getting your insights. Uh, a big, big thumbs up to you. Anytime, Jim. Thanks. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If you could use a little help eating healthy, Afwaba with the Let's Cook Challenge. Having a tough time giving takeout a break and want to get into the kitchen to make meals of your own? York Region has a challenge that can help you become your own personal chef, if you will. Joining me to chat today is Lucy Velo, public health nutritionist with York Region. She's about to let us know a challenge that's going to help you brush up on your cooking skills. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thanks so much. All right. So let's let the listeners know, what is Let's Cook 30 all about? 
uh, it focuses on really on inspiring people to cook at least one meal a day for 30 days in October. Um, we know that, you know, if we cook more, leading a healthy lifestyle, saving money, reducing food waste, bringing friends and family together and, and exploring new food and recipes, these are all benefits to cooking more at home. And we know that many people aren't cooking as much anymore at home. They're eating out, relying on convenient foods and ultra-processed foods, which the majority of those tend to be high in fat, and sugar, and salt. And so uh, that's concerning because these foods prepared away from home and the use of convenience foods is really um, reducing our diet quality and uh, increasing our risk for diseases like you know, cancer and diabetes and heart disease. So if we can inspire people to get into the kitchen and cook more, then we're hoping that we can also reduce their risk of disease as well. So this chat is just as much for me as it is for the residents, because I will not lie. (laughs) I have been frequenting takeout places a little bit too much and probably should put the credit card and the, well, not the credit card, whoa, the debit card away and uh, maybe just use that money instead to buy some fresh ingredients and put some stuff together. So thank you (laughs) for putting together this challenge. Um, I'm definitely going to try and be a part of that. And uh, I, of course, encourage residents to do that as well. Can you tell me, Lucy, how this idea came about? Well, because we know that there's um, a problem with people eating out so much, we thought that if we can really get, you know, challenge people on uh, on social media, use social media and pictures, etc., to, to cook more, then um, they may just see how easy it really is. Um, you know, if we just take a few minutes at the beginning of each week to plan ahead, think about what we're going to cook, plan our menu, it's really not that difficult. Um, one of the things that we've done is um, we know that uh, millennials, for example, between the ages, late millennials, between the ages of 26 and 35, um, they have a strong connection to food, um, but they're considered de-skilled in, the terms, in terms of food preparation and cooking, so they're not... Um, they're not learning to uh, as cook as much as we did when we were when back in the day, um, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, we know we don't have cooking in school anymore, and uh, we're not having skills passed to us from our parents because our parents are busy and working, and uh, we have two parents working in the house uh, out of out of the house. Our food environment is poor. We have an increase in packaged and prepackaged convenient foods everywhere. Um, and then we, that requires different skills to even put food on the table when they're already cooked for us. So there's, there's a few issues happening, and we want to uh, turn that around and get back to the basics and start cooking more with fresh vegetables and fruit. Um, but you can, find so, so, you can find so many fresh vegetables and fruit in York Region with our, at our local farms. Um, so, yeah, that's, we've decided that let's put this challenge in place, really get people to think about cooking at least one meal a day, for 30 days, we're, we have lots of recipes on our website. We have a website, uh, it's york.ca slash let's uh, cook 30. And on there, you'll find all kinds of recipes for inspiration to, to try and encourage people to see how easy it is. 
Awesome. Okay, I am pumped already. So um, let's break it down then for the residents. When does this begin? And then how necessarily do residents participate? I know you alluded to it uh, right now in terms of having it be one meal a day. So already, that's good. We're easing in residents into this and not necessarily having to have them cook a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, but how exactly do they go about this? So they can visit our website, and on our website, they can register for the challenge. And if they register for the challenge, we will send them. Uh, there's a simple little starter's guide, which pr- provides tips to help um, make cooking um, a success. Uh, there's a few tips in there. We will res- we'll send them some emails a couple a week, just which will include a weekly meal plan with recipes and some expert advice. Um, we'll send them some meal plans uh, that they don't. They def- definitely don't have to follow the meal plans. They're just there for, as I said earlier, just inspiration. Get them thinking about what they could cook. But we'd love to see them post their own recipes on on um, social media, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, and that will encourage others to also start cooking. If if you see other people's people doing it and how easy it is. Um, there's also a chance if they post their pictures of their meals, they can win all kinds of great prizes. We're having a weekly uh, prize um, draw as well as a grand prize at the end of the month. So if they go on, they can register uh, and receive all of that. Or if they choose not to register, they can just have a look at our website and see the meal plans. They come up weekly. Uh, they can check them out there as well. Oh, okay. And I like the whole prize thing at the end. So it, it definitely puts uh, the word challenge into full play. Um, and uh, I think it'll probably bring out some competitiveness <laughs> in certain residents for sure, uh, for those who want to get that prize. Um, quick question. Any rules? Uh, let's say they don't do things from scratch. Like, for example, can somebody get some craft dinner and then put some like green peppers on top and say, look what I made. Does that count or does it have to be from scratch? Uh, no, it, it does count. It, you know what? There's not really any rules per se. To be honest, we just want to help people get started in the kitchen um, and and if they already cook, to cook a bit more. Really, our definition of cooking is really about um, combining two or more ingredients. So, yeah, craft dinner, that, that is cooking. And if that's cooking more than you did before, then, you know, we could, that's fine. But we really want to try and push people out of their comfort zone and try some new recipes, try some um, uh, getting into the, the, the habit of planning, thinking about how to use leftovers so that they're not wasting food, um, really trying to push them a little bit further than what they were doing before. But everyone's version of cooking is a you know slightly different and we just want to just up the ante a little bit for every individual all right and uh before i let you go just putting you on the spot a little bit what maybe are some of your go-to um favorite you know dishes that you would like for residents to maybe try during this challenge Ah, well, the the very first one that we've got is one of my favorites. It's the teriyaki veggie bowl, and it can be made as a vegetarian dish with tofu, or you can add chicken or um, uh, pork or any any other kind of protein, but it's delicious. I've made it a number of times. That's one of my favorites. And the best thing about that is you can make extra rice, and then later in the week, you could have a stir-fried rice. The rice is already made for you, and we have a fried rice recipe uh, right in the menu plan as well. So we've really tried to incorporate ingredients that you can use 
more than once during the week um, to reduce your time, for one, and to reduce the cost of ingredients. All our recipes are really, really simple um, with very simple ingredients that require very little cooking equipment as well. We want to reduce any barriers there are to, to try and cook more. So those are two of my favorites. Um, there's, a, there's a great biscotti recipe in there, too, that I love. Lots. I, there's too many to mention. <laughs> All right. I'm sold already with the first two that you mentioned. Um, let's let the listeners know where can residents then go for more information, um, and, of course, including socials, um, in case they want to post a picture of, of the dishes that they make and post it onto uh, social media. Yes. So they can visit our website, which is uh, york.ca forward slash let's cook 30. They can also follow us on Instagram using the hashtag Let's Cook 30 uh, or on Twitter. And, uh, and they can also tag or um, tag uh, York Region Gov um, as well. And they need to do those things to participate in the, um, to, to qualify for the prizes as well, uh, to tag York Region Gov or um, use the hashtag Let's Cook 30. Perfect. Okay. And of course, uh, residents still have a bit more time to prep as this officially begins on October 1st, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So they can get all ready. We also include grocery lists so they can download those if they so choose to follow the menu plan. There's a full complete grocery list there that they can check out. Perfect. Okay, Lucy, thank you so much for joining me today, letting me know about Let's Cook 30. Uh, Residents, I definitely encourage you to try this. It looks like it's going to be just as fun as it will be competitive, and you will come out with a whole new different sets of skills and recipes at the end of this. It's a win-win situation all around. Lucy, thank you so much. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including an update on Hospice Vaughn. Belinda, welcome back to The Feed. I know. It's so nice to see you, and who can believe it's September already? Yes, here we are, and you're back to tell us about the Hospice Vaughn Gala. Before we get there, let's remind our listeners what Hospice Vaughn is all about. Wonderful. You know, hospice is about love and compassion and being connected to people in our lives, in our family, in our community, and just overall citizenship. It's about taking care of people as they're dealing with health struggles, and sadly, that's part of life, but ensuring that the quality of people's lives and the things that are familiar are always centered around our relationships. So hospice provides that compassionate care. We help the family members continue their devoted support to their loved ones, but we also have an ambassadorship of volunteers and citizens that want to make a difference and want to make sure that people aren't alone. So we provide compassionate programs for people, and that happens in the in-home hospice program. It happens with our on-site programs, which includes a day program. And then we do a lot of counseling support for the loved ones and also for those that are bereaved. And we have a lot of programs like children's support, And we just really try to look at the care for our community in a holistic way because everyone is impacted by someone they know who's sick or ill at some point in their life. And we just want to be there for them. And that's what the hospice movement uh, is all about. 
Now, Hospice Vaughn is on the move, isn't it? It is. You know, 25 years of age and championing citizenship and kindness. And here we are uh, next spring getting ready to open up our new facility. Our in-home hospice program is always going to be the cornerstone, but the building will allow us to provide more on-site programs for community members. But it's going to have something that's very special and unique. It's going to have a 10-bed residential hospice. And people say, Belinda, why only 10 beds? And I said, well, remember, it's the final resting place for people. People want to stay at home. And they want to be with their loved ones. And then when the care needs to shift and the family can just be there by the bedside, then we'll take over that support and we're going to provide that compassionate end-of-life care in a setting that is going to be just incredible. And we're so blessed to have this building here in Vaughan. I say every day to everyone I know, when you're doing something for the community, from the community, it truly doesn't get any better than that, Tina. I, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. Let's talk then about the programs and services provided by Hospice Vaughn. For sure. So the, the counseling programs and the in-home hospice programs, uh, the support to the children and the family unit to making sure that they're, they're held closely in their hearts while they're supporting their loved ones. It's emotional. I don't know how it is for every listener out there, but it happens in my family and your family, sometimes because of aging but sometimes not because of aging. And that's becoming the more complicated piece because sometimes the journey of our life isn't exactly what we expect it to be. And sometimes it's also through tragedy. And then people are kind of there and they're saying, where do I go and, and how do I get help? And I don't know. It's kind of this interesting phenomenon. Someone just says, oh, have you heard of hospice? No. And it's like, oh, well, you know, they do this and they do that. Okay. And then they call and they're like, I, if I only knew. So it always empowers us through our various circles and through the public voice, which we're so grateful for the feed to give us this opportunity to say, like, listen, reach out. Someone will point you in that right direction. It's less than two degrees of separation. And all of a sudden they come to you and they're saying, okay, well, what do I have to pay? We're like, no, you have enough burden right now. These programs are supported by the community. There's no charge to you. And then people as they figure out what the next steps are and perhaps they're ready to get back into some normalcy because it's never really quite normal, let's be honest, then they might be our next round of ambassadors or volunteers and citizens that help the next group. So it's that cascading effect that kind of happens through through the community. And it's quite a beautiful thing to see. And at the end of the day, uh, last night we had a parent group and some of the parents have said to me, they've now built their support system through their new family. This hospice program is a family affair because we're all unique and we all have our own story. But when you're talking to parents that have lost a child of various situations and ages, they have that commonality. We can't take away that pain, but we can sure help them to know that they're there for each other and try to move forward in whatever way, in whatever time. It's not, it's not a roller coaster ride. It's a journey. So hospice is about supporting that journey and we're just here to make sure we're listening to people and trying to figure out how can we serve more because there are many people, Tina, and it breaks my heart, that are truly isolated, perhaps because they have no one or perhaps the people around them are just so burnt out and can't be there for them. And it's, it's something that, you know, can affect you long term. And you know what? Our emotional well-being is as important as our physical well-being. And sometimes it's just making sure that we look at the whole person and their support people around them. It, it just is, it's interesting. 
It absolutely is. If there's a listener out there who perhaps wants to volunteer at Hospice Vaughn, what does that training and prep work look like before they're actually in the work of it? For sure, Tina. That's an important question because it used to be more of that informal thing, a neighbor just knocking on your door, and that we want to still happen. But for those citizens and and community members that want to come out to volunteer, there's a whole support system out there. There's a a provincial standard for training hospice volunteers for for what we call the direct service side, bedside care helping people in the programs and services directly. But there's so many other ways that people can volunteer by helping with administration or helping with our fundraising events, our awareness campaigns. So the training modules all kind of um, connect together. So we want people to know about what we do, how we deliver the support. For those that are more hands-on in the care, there's close to 30, 35 hours of training. Some of it's in person, some of it's online. And then we really kind of build that spirit of community together so people can flex between different roles in the organization and feel that volunteering is giving them purpose and meaning. And it's interesting, one of the volunteers I saw a few days ago, she said, you know, I always thought that I would be offering something to someone else. And what I realize now in doing this hospice volunteer work is what I actually learned from them. Instead of what I'm giving, it's what I'm learning and how my life has been enriched by meeting these incredible human beings. Because at the end of the day, people don't necessarily want to focus on the death or the loss. They want to focus on the person. Who am I? What's important to me? That's what I think about, right? And when you're talking to people and you hear their experiences or you have some common interests, it just grounds the whole story together. Now then, doesn't it take a special type of person to want to volunteer in a hospice? It truly does. You know, there's a lot of intimidation. People say, oh, isn't that like depressing? And I'm like, oh my goodness, it's sad at times, but it's beautiful because, you know, it's about people's connections. And sometimes you don't even know what you could reflect back on in your own life. So you have to be for sure emotionally um, able to kind of embrace the concept And then also self-reflect because sometimes you do have to kind of be careful that you don't get pulled into someone else's story so you can stay present to support them. But that's part of the whole training experience and that ongoing opportunity for mentorship and coaching within our hospice family. So that's kind of the, the, the process together. So people don't have to feel like I know how to do it and I'm ready to do everything. It's not about that. It's really about an experience and, and, and being open. And then from there, you'll find your way. And you might start off in the kitchen or you might start off with reception duties. And then all of a sudden you meet people coming into the hospice and you're like, they look like me. Oh, that could be someone in my family. And then it doesn't feel as intimidating. So it's part of a, a process that we just say, come talk to us and see. Uh, Daniela is our manager. She's phenomenal. She'll tell you a little bit about it. And then you can kind of explore that without that expectation or pressure the minute you make that phone call or you visit the website. You have a gala coming up next month, and you rely on these fundraising initiatives to keep Hospice Vaughn working. Tell us about the gala. For sure. The gala is our annual uh, gala. It is an incredible evening of generosity and uh, the spirit of kindness. Many people don't know that the hospice funding is often reliant on the community funding directly. Right now, in our current state, we rely on 88% of our funds coming from the donors. So if it's private donors or businesses or perhaps some small grants that we're able to, to access... 
we don't want to charge people for our programs and services. It's a, it's a fundamental value system that we have. So many times people aren't working because they're taking care of people. They have other financial burdens, paying for medications or other things that they, their loved one needs. We don't want to be that burden. So we do rely. The, the gala annually is our corner store cornerstone funding source to manage our programs and services. And it's an interesting piece because we're also raising money for the building and we need to raise the money for the inside of the building next. But the programs and services are always first because it's about those we serve. The building will help us to do more of that, and we're so blessed for that. So it's always that balance. So if people are interested in finding out about the gala, participating, volunteering at the gala, it's a, honestly, I've never been to anything like this uh, other than when I joined Hospice Vaughn a few years back. It's The energy is beautiful. The people are beautiful. They come, they learn, they have a great time. It's a fun night. Let's be very clear. So when is it? It's Friday, October the 18th. It's at the Terrace this year. Um, it's going to be a thousand plus people coming together. Um, we get dressed up at all different ranges of dress up and we just hang out. We listen, we laugh, we have incredible food and entertainment. You get on the dance floor and you walk away saying, I feel like I'm part of a Vaughn community or people that are known to Vaughn come out to, to it and you just feel good. And you know, when you know that I'm a donor too. I, I pay for my ticket. So when I go to this gala, I'm participating not just because I work at Hospice Fund, but because I believe in Hospice Fund. And I go in there and I'm just saying, there are so many good things that are happening out there and so many kind people, but yet we don't talk about it. So talking about the gala and talking about the volunteers and talking about how we make it work, because it's all the hows in life, right? That's what makes it happen. So Something to celebrate. Something to celebrate. So, you know, please come out, hospicevon.com or call us at 905-850-6266. And, you know, get involved with us because we're, you know, one of my volunteers said to me, she said, you know, four years ago when I started volunteering for you, I never thought that I would need the help. But yet now my parents are aging and uh, her father just came out of hospital a few days ago and her mom is in poor declining health. And she goes, now I need the support and we need the support as a family. And she goes, and I would have never imagined that. So, you know, if you come in with your lived experiences or you just embrace your openness, you know, it, it, it just has an interesting way of working itself out. And we're so grateful. This Vaughn community that we're in and our surrounding communities that uh, embrace Vaughn as well. There's something special in every community, but this community really gets behind supporting Hospice Vaughn. And I really want all the listeners to know we do not take it for granted. And we are so grateful. And if you could have a glimpse into a story or a glimpse into seeing a face of someone we served, I can tell you they would thank each listener from the bottom of their hearts because it's not easy. You mentioned that the new facility, the new 10-bed facility, will open in the spring of 2020. Where is it located? It's at Islington and Rutherford. Uh, we're very fortunate that uh, Toronto Regional and Conservation uh, TRCA uh, donated the land to us. Um, it's on the uh, northeast corner uh, on the opposite side of where the Harry Potter uh, Golf Place is. And um, it's almost 27,000 square feet on three acres of green space. On track to open on time? Uh, on track to open in spring. We don't have a firm date yet. And I can tell you I've walked in the building as it's being constructed. All the beds, all the rooms, uh, the uh, client rooms are facing green space. So for a loved one or a family member to be able to be there, to be close to nature, 
to have people taking care of them. Um, it's going to be a very special place, and we are very excited to open our doors because we have people calling us that need it now. One more time, if our listeners want more information about the hospice, to volunteer, or the gala, where can they go? Absolutely. They can visit us on our website at hospicevon.com, and they can also give us a call at 905-850-6266. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Our next play, the on and off ice action from the North York Renegades of the GMHL. The Greater Metro Toronto Junior A Hockey League is uh, producing some great talent across the province over a wide uh, geographical area. Thanks in part because they have some good coaches leading these young men, including Daryl Lloyd. He's the head coach of the North York Renegades. Daryl, it's a pleasure. How are you doing? Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I, I know of different junior hockey leagues around the province. Tell us about the Greater Metro Junior A League and how it's different than maybe some of the other ones, Daryl. Um. You know, this league's great for uh, uh, overseas players, uh, including Russian. Uh, we have a Korean player. We have a Czech player. Uh, it gives these kids uh, an eye-opener, what juniors really like in Canada. And uh, it's a non-sanctioned Canada hockey league, which gives these kids an opportunity to play at the junior level. Because in some junior leagues that are Canada-sanctioned, uh, European kids and overseas kids um, can't play and regular junior league. Now, I know for, from your own hockey background, I, I remember you were with Windsor, and you played in the ECHL, but you had a long stint of the Belfast Giants. Because you played overseas in Belfast, does that give you a bit of an understanding what some of these overseas kids are experiencing when they come over to play in the GMHL? You know, like, uh, Belfast is building a youth program over there, and, uh, you know, after my retirement of hockey, um, I wasn't really leaning towards coaching, but uh, a buddy of mine asked me to help him coach the Renegades, and... Uh, uh, here I am, and, you know, having these overseas kids, I think we have more overseas guys this year than we have because I want to give these guys an opportunity to get a little taste of experience of uh, actually the old style play hockey that I play and also mix with the new style. Like some of these kids coming out and uh, from Russia that used to go to Blythe Academy and so on, uh, I used to see some of the talent these kids have. Are you finding that, I know you ended up playing for Tom Webster in Windsor, but when you enter the OHL, Daryl, these kids that you're talking about, their skill set is a little bit elevated than from back in the day when you were leaving midget and going to junior? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, the game's changed. Uh, you know, they, they wanted their big six, seven, uh, six, eight guys <laughs> back then when I played. And uh, it was a little intimidating going in as a small guy. But, uh, you know, when you play with good guys and uh the game's changed, right? Uh, now it's more speed, uh, finesse, uh, quickness with the puck, moving the puck as fast as you can, um, you know, and it's a little less physical. But uh, the way that we are this year is that we're a physical team, but we're also fast. So we're combining the two styles of hockey play, which I think that is more entertaining than actually just watching people pass the puck around. Speaking of Daryl Lloyd, uh, Lloyd, the head coach of the North York Renegades, of the Greater Metro Junior A Hockey League. And, Daryl, I have to think that over the years playing for a variety of coaches, you've probably picked up things. Are, are there certain coaches that are bigger impacting you than when you're talking to the kids that you can almost hear their voices in the back of your head? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting you say that because, you know, you want to be the coach 
you want to be. And when you learn stuff from uh, coaches like Tommy Webster, who was my basically first semi-professional coach, and, you know, he he was a very understanding old-school old guy, but he was uh, a hard guy to, you know, uh, on the ice. Like, if he didn't perform, then, you know, uh, that's what happens. And, uh, you know, playing for coaches along the way, you learn good things and bad things on what they did. And you know what? Uh, I loved every coach I played for. Um, and you just learn little bits and pieces of plays that they do. And uh, you kind of organize your style of coaching. What's more nerve-wracking for you as a player before the game or as a coach? Sort of sometimes things out of your control, standing behind the bench trying to win a game. Yeah, I think it's more uh, more nerve-wracking being a coach, to be honest, because when you play the game so long, uh, it just comes naturally to you. And, you know, when you're in a slump as a player, uh, you can control that yourself. Um, being a coach, you can control it a little bit, but I feel like you, you need to depend on your teammates to all be on the same page, uh, know their systems. And, uh, you know, I wish I was out there still, but uh, now that I want to spread, spread the love a little bit with my gameplay and the way the game is now, um, I think it's a great opportunity for these kids to come to this team and actually learn how to play junior hockey. Well, Daryl, how, how is this season going from the Renegades? How are they responding to your coaching style? Well, this uh, this far we played five games. Uh, we are five and zero. Uh, we haven't lost yet. Uh, our next challenge is this weekend uh, against St. George and Durham Roadrunners. They play out of Oshawa. Um, so uh, St. George has um, been good every year. You know they have uh, they have a few farm boys out there that uh, big boys that uh, we're, we're we can match up against. Um, I think we'll take them. Uh, we're going to be a pretty good team this year. Fun to watch. Uh, we play at our York Canland Ice Sports um, usually every Saturday, so we're uh, we're pretty excited to actually play um, a, a team that can actually win this year, St. George, uh, but they're going to have to go through us first. I like that your team's involved in a lot of community activities. You have stuff coming up in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month and then Men's Health in November for November. Tell us about the involvement with your players and your organization with things like that, Daryl. Well, I, I got into that because, you know, playing professional hockey, we were always involved. And uh, some junior teams, I think Windsor, we did we did quite a few um you know, special events and uh, charities and stuff. But this year I kind of wanted to impact the, the city and, and do a little bit more. Uh, for instance, like uh, November, Grow Your Mo, uh, we raised over 2500 last year. Um, and then uh, for December, we decided to do this year, we're doing the uh, breast cancer. Uh, so we're going to wear pink jerseys, pink socks. We're going to have pink laces on our skates, uh, pink tape. Uh, we're going to be all decked out and uh, uh, pink stuff for all the month of December. Uh, we also have a few other things that we do. Uh, we do skate drives, food drives. Uh, we we pick a school in the area that's uh, not very financially uh, right, and uh, we actually take the kids. We buy them all hockey skates, uh, and we have a pizza pizza lunch for them, and they get to skate with all the guys on the team. That's really cool. I mean, that's great that they're learning that at that age, Daryl, and getting that sort of lesson. That's going to help them later in life as adults. That's right. That's right. And that's what our that's what our plan is. These kids are supposed to be adults. Uh, you know, we, we vary anywhere between 15 to 21. Uh, we are the only uh, junior league that can actually allow 21-year-olds to play. 
which is kind of neat because some of these kids, you know, they get one last shot and, uh, you know, a lot of schools are looking at us. Like we have a lot of uh, D2, D3 schools. Uh, we sent a couple guys over to Sweden this year in the D3 area. Um, so, you know, as older guys, they have a chance to pursue their hockey and maybe pr- pursue a scholarship. And what's the website for listeners who want to follow the GMHL? Uh, the GMHL website is gmhl.com. Beautiful. i got to ask you, best player you played with or against in your long hockey career? Ooh. Um, best player I played with would probably be Steve Ott. Oh, yeah. He was uh, He scored 50 goals every year. Um, he was basically a utility player. He, you could put him in any situation. Um, pretty good character. Uh, I played with him for two, three years in the, in the O. Um, you know, obviously when you, when you go on in your hockey career, you lose contact with everybody, but, uh, you know, I, he's won the Stanley Cup with St. Louis uh, as an assistant coach. So that's pretty cool as well. Um, I guess against, that's hard to say. There's, <laughs> There was a lot of players back then. Uh, they're probably coming up to retirement now in the OHL, but uh, I mean, sorry, in the NHL. But I would say the hardest guy would probably be Rick Nash. He was hard to knock off the puck. Uh, all three minor hockey. Heard of me? He's got that shot too, Daryl. Yeah, he has that shot, and he has, uh, you know, he has the size. Back then, when he when we played minor hockey, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't that tall, and all of a sudden, draft year, he shot up like five inches. It was insane. Wow. That's good stuff. Daryl, really appreciate this. The head coach of the North York Renegades, Daryl Lloyd, longtime pro hockey player, former Windsor Spitfire in the OHL, and doing good things with the greater, greater Metro Junior A Hockey League. Daryl, I really appreciate this. Continuous success with the Renegades. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, we should uh, have a good season this year, and uh, make sure you come out and watch us. Okay, Daryl, thanks a lot. Take care, my friend. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.